Welcome to the podcast series for the Journal of Neurophysiology. I'm Bill Yates, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal, and today we will be talking with the authors of the recent Rapid Report article, LRRK2 Mutation Alters Behavioral, Synaptic, and Non-Synaptic Adaptations to Acute Social Stress. Before we begin, let's meet our guests. My name is George Huntley. I'm a professor of neuroscience at Mount Sinai in New York, and I'm interested in synaptic circuit development and plasticity, particularly in disease contexts. I'm Deanna Benson, and I'm also one of the senior authors on the paper. I am also a professor of neuroscience at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. I, too, am very interested in how disease-related gene mutations impact nervous system development, and in this case, how an early change might cause a later vulnerability. I'm Bridget Madikin and Inkney, and I was a PhD student with George and Deanna at Mount Sinai, and I'm currently a postdoc in the Kravitz lab at WashU. And overall, I'm very interested in how synaptic plasticity and synaptic alterations underlie behavioral changes and how those can last quite a while. Hi, my name is Christopher Guevara. I'm a second-year neuroscience PhD student at the Icon School of Medicine in the laboratories of George Huntley and Deanna Benson. And my interests lie at how disease mutations can affect shrietal plasticity and lead to susceptibility to various mood disorders. Could you give us a brief background on the LRRK2 G2019S mutation? Sure. So LRK2 stands for leucine-rich repeat kinase 2. It's a large multifunctional protein whose principal hallmark is this catalytic core. It has both GTPase and kinase domains. And the Parkinson's disease-associated mutations lie generally within this catalytic core. And the G2019S point mutation is in the kinase domain. It increases kinase activity about twofold and it is the most prevalent form of familial Parkinson's disease. It causes late-onset PD that is clinically indistinguishable from other forms of late-onset PD, and it also contributes significant risk to idiopathic forms as well. There's a lot of convergence from cell biological type assays that the protein functions in intracellular protein sorting and trafficking. That seems to be generally a consensus in the field, but What the protein does in cells and synaptic circuits, particularly in the context of behaviors, is really entirely unknown. So this is our interest in trying to understand how this mutant protein is functioning in regions and cells and circuits that are relevant to human Parkinson's disease and some of the symptoms that go along with that disease. Why were you interested in exploring the link between this mutation and the stress response? Okay, so Parkinson's disease is diagnosed clinically by the motor symptoms. And this is something that's been recognized for a little over 200 years from when James Parkinson first described the shaking palsy. But it's also known that there's a whole range of non-motor symptoms that accompany Parkinson's disease. And many of these appear many years earlier, in fact, decades earlier, than the clinically defining motor symptoms. And in particular, we're interested in deficits in executive function and particularly psychiatric symptoms, depression and anxiety. It's known that there's this link between depression and Parkinson's. It's also known that stress impacts both of these. So it increases the risk for developing depression and it increases the risk for Parkinson's. 
What's not clear is what the intersection is between stress, PD, and this particular gene mutation. What methods did you use in the study? For our study, we decided to first look at different brain regions and circuits that have been studied extensively and been found to really mediate a lot of stress-related behaviors across various species. And so what we decided to do to help probe this acute stress impact within our mutant animals, we decided to utilize an acute social stress paradigm, which has been well-documented to be an important proxy to look into different depression-like uh, social avoidance and hedonic-like behaviors. And so when it came to the different experiments we carried out for this paper, it could be broken down into two different components. So within the first component, we took young adult, wild type, and mutant mice that had undergone this acute social stress paradigm and followed that up by patch clamp electrophysiology within these brain slices, specifically looking at cells and circuits that have been found to be very important within the behaviors of mice and humans. And within the second set of experiments, we decided to look at if this mutation is carried out throughout a lifetime, how much and to what extent is it really impacting the development of these circuits within early postnatal life when these circuits themselves are remodeling and shaping and taking form. What were your findings? From our study, we were able to get three major findings. So from the first finding, we were able to see that after wild-type mice and these mutant mice underwent acute social stress, the mutant mice showed a very significant impact in terms of their behavior after undergoing this acute stress. Very specifically, they showed an increase in social avoidance, which we, we normally see as a depressive-like response. And so in parallel to that, we know that animals that show this increase in social avoidance also tend to have a decrease in preference of sucrose over water, which we know has been seen as a hedonic phenotype in human depression. What was really surprising within our study was that these mutant mice that had undergone this acute stressor itself showed an increase in sucrose consumption which for us seems very interesting to the fact that it uncouples with some of the depression-like and achidonic responses within these animals themselves. When we looked at animals that lacked the social defeat experience altogether, we can see that there existed no differences across any of these phenotypes whatsoever. When it came to the second finding, we decided to probe what exactly is mediating a lot of these social behaviors and specifically this increase in social avoidance within these mutant animals. And so using patch clamp electrophysiology, we found that within these two different genotypes of mice, after the stress, they showed different forms of plasticity. When it came to the wild-type neurons, they showed an increase in neuronal excitability, while mutant animals showed a significant change when it came to their synaptic transmission. And our final point showed that even within three weeks postnatal, we already see differences in these brain structures that we study in relation to stress and that could be mediating this behavior in the way that we can see that these animals show already differences in synaptic properties and morphology at a very early age. What are the implications of these findings regarding the G2019S mutation? I think there's several important implications from our studies in mice. The first one is that it's very clear that these mutant mice respond to stress very differently than wild-type mice. But it's more complex than just a different response. Because what Chris described was the effects of one day of stress, and the animals are very socially avoidant, which is a depression-like behavior. But Bridget led an earlier study where we took the same social defeat paradigm, but we repeated it over 10 days. This is a chronic social defeat paradigm. And what that outcome showed was that these mice become highly socially interactive, so they're resilient to the defeat experience, which is the complete opposite of what we just described for this one day social defeat experience. So what we don't know 
is what the evolving mechanisms are that take the mice from an acute vulnerability to a chronic resilience. So that's the first point. And the second point is something Chris mentioned too. There's this uncoupling of these different behaviors which tend to focus together as a spectrum. Depression-like and anhedonic-like behaviors typically go together. In these mice, those different behaviors are uncoupled. And that points to the idea that this LERP2 mutation has different effects in very specific circuits. And that'll take future studies to kind of untangle what that is. I think the other second thing is that underlying these very different behavioral responses are fundamentally different cellular and synaptic adaptations to the behavioral stressor. So in one case, we have wild-type neurons that are responding by changing intrinsic excitability, but mutant neurons don't display that form. In contrast, mutant neurons display abnormal synaptic properties that the wild-type neurons don't. So presumably, these different changes are underlying the behaviors. And again, it's going to take future studies to really look at the cause and effect of these changes. And then I think the third major implication is the developmental aspect. You know, again, as Chris mentioned, these genes are carried throughout life. And in the LERC2G2019S mutation in particular, this expression really comes on during the time when cortical inputs are growing into the striatum, the structures that are responsible for these kinds of behaviors. And so that immediately suggests there's a critical period type interaction where experience and activity can shape and sculpt the circuitry, both structurally and functionally. And so again, we think in the case of humans, this very well may indicate that there's already a predisposition very early in life. And whether that predisposition is creating a vulnerability to future degeneration or whether it's directly causing some of these non-motor symptoms, we don't know yet. Again, that'll take future studies. But that's what the implications seem to be for human Parkinson's disease. It's a new way of looking at the disease with a developmental underpinning. I do think it's important whenever we're interpreting all of these results to remember, at least in our case, with this specific knock-in mutant mouse model, the animals don't become Parkinsonian. And so, you know, we can talk about susceptibility to the disease, and we can talk about our hypothesis that potentially early changes in circuits are somehow predisposing the system to degeneration later on, but we don't actually know that yet. I think that's a really interesting question, and I think that something that this study doesn't really pinpoint, but it sort of dances around, is this potential to sort of push the system with some kind of stress. Um, Georgia talked about this a lot, but you know, maybe extensive stress throughout one's life could be the second hit in the two-hit model with the first hit being genetic predisposition to the disease. But we don't really know that yet. And so at this point, I just wanted to point out that's very much a hypothesis. For me, the really fascinating thing is that the data are telling us that there are several different strategies that can be taken to generate what's ostensibly a functioning circuit. Because at least humans that have this disease, while their circuitry may be solving problems differently, they're functioning in society quite well until they're older. And so it's telling us that there are different ways that the circuits can behave that are within the realm of normal function. And that I find very interesting. I also think it's very interesting that this counters a number of assumptions that things like anhedonia will accompany social avoidance and those sorts of things will all collect together to define something and our data strongly indicate that in fact there are distinct differences and they pull them apart. I'd like to thank our guests for participating in today's discussion of the article LRRK2 mutation alters behavioral, synaptic, 
and non-synaptic adaptations to acute social stress. Part of the podcast series for the Journal of Neurophysiology. Thank you.